ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Dave Nodig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. He is just out with a brand new piece on risk and volatility. And I'll tell you, uh, anytime Dave writes anything, I immediately drop whatever I'm doing and read it. It's that simple. However, I'm not going to uh, lie. This particular piece, this was high level. Dave ventured into what he likes to call the deep end of the pool, which isn't always a place I can uh, swim. So I had to put on my floaties this holiday weekend to get through this, but really enjoyed the piece. And there were some very interesting takeaways. So we'll discuss those. And then I have a couple of uh, other ETF topics I want to touch on as well, including advisor shares launching the Gerber Kawasaki ETF. Now, also joining me this week will be Eric Irvin, CEO of Blockforce Capital and co-founder of OnRamp Invest. And with OnRamp, Eric and his team are working to build a bridge between traditional financial services and crypto assets. And if you think about this, that's a pretty big undertaking given how fast crypto moves and how slow traditional financial services move. So we're going to discuss how that's been going and talk about some of the problems they're attempting to solve. And then I just want to get Eric's thoughts on Bitcoin and crypto right now. Uh, Eric manages a multi-strategy crypto fund at Blockforce, and there's been a significant pullback across the entire crypto space over the past few months. So we'll dig into that. Uh, we'll talk DeFi, whatever else we can squeeze in. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Darren Sharinga, CEO and founder of Asymmetric ETFs, who back in March, they launched their first ETF. It's called the Asymmetric 500 ETF. The ticker is ASPY, A-S-P-Y. And what's interesting here is this ETF can actually go short the S&P 500. It'll short SPY, but it's entirely rules-based. And the long component of this ETF holds lower volatility stocks. So I'll have Darren walk through the mechanics of that. And this isn't Darren's first rodeo in the ETF space. He actually founded Exchange Traded Concepts, which is still the largest white label ETF platform in the world. He also founded uh, Yorkville ETF Advisors, which was acquired by Van Eck in 2015. So uh, really look forward to that conversation. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends, Dave Nodding. 
Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, this piece you wrote on volatility, I'll be honest, uh, my head still hurts. <laughs> I, I, well, imagine I, how mine feels after having to try to write it. Well, I read this a couple of times over the uh, holiday weekend, and then I followed that with a few beers <laughs> each time. Uh, but, but look, this piece was titled Long Vol, It's Always Different. This is posted at ETFtrends.com. And let me just start with this. I'm, I'm curious, what was it that originally lit the fire for you to write this? Because this was a legit deep dive. So this is sort of a continuation of the work that I started uh, back in the GameStop era, if you remember in January when we all collectively lost our minds for a few days. Uh, and, and I started going down the rabbit hole of, you know, what possible influences there could be, not just to justify, you know, the, the you know, specific activity we saw in that one stock, but what else is going on that has created a market where these kinds of things actually are starting to feel normal, right? We, we see these crazy sort of out of sample movements in individual stocks and individual markets. And, and we've become, I think, a bit inured to them. So I started doing a lot of research on understanding market volatility. And boy, once you start peeling that first layer of the onion on volatility, it turns out you, you got to go a long way before you find the diamond in the middle. Yeah, there is a ton that we can unpack here. I guess I, I mentioned at the top, I, I did have a few takeaways here. So maybe we can go through those and then, you know, we'll yeah, see where sure. that, where that takes us. Well, you know, I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways was simply that we can't rely on historical data or calculations to predict the future. And I think everybody knows that intuitively, but we all want predictability, right? So it's very easy right. to become enamored with fancy models and statistics and, and ratios. Obviously, you walk through the different measures of, of you know, volatility. But, I, you know, I think largely because these things are based in math, that, that does give us a sense of comfort. And I felt like you were essentially saying, well, well, look, these different measures of volatility, they all have their own issues. And at the end of the day, none of them are going to tell us if there's a huge risk on the horizon that's going to blow up our portfolios. Um, I, I guess, is that a fair characterization in terms of the, you know, where you were heading? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, in the, from an academic sort of finance perspective, really what we're concerned about is sort of expected returns, right? That's as advisors, as investors, expected returns are all we really care about. What are we going to expect next year? Like, what does a normal year look like? And then what does a normal investing cycle, like the next 15 or 20 years look like? And, you know, the entire financial advisory industry is built on helping investors predict and manage that very tricky question. What are my expected returns given a certain set of priors? The pr and, and I think what we've gotten hung up on, I'll speak for myself, for decades is focusing on what those priors are, right? So we can talk about, well, okay, what's my estimate for inflation versus your estimate for inflation? And that's the distinction between yours and my investment thesis. What I started to uncover here, and to be honest, I barely scratched the surface of this, is that regardless of your priors, the very math and models we use to manipulate those priors into a sense of expected return are themselves very suspect. That's particularly the work of one rogue economist in London named Ole Peters, uh, who runs a website called Ergodicity Economics. 
Uh, and, and, you know, fundamentally, he's just pointing out the fact that we built most of the math for modern economics and markets coming out of the Industrial Revolution and haven't really messed with it much since. And guess what? We've learned a lot since the Industrial Revolution. Maybe we should get better at math. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And, you, you know, you look at some of these models, you, you touch on this in your piece. They make a lot of huge assumptions, Right. And you said the biggest of which is that returns and outcomes, they don't fall into a nice bell-shaped curve. It's it's not always a normal distribution. And I guess on that note, you know, the challenge here for investors is that we have to make decisions with this in mind, right? We have to deploy money, obviously not knowing what the future holds. We can't put it into a neat model and have it spit out exactly what's going to happen. And you said in your piece, let me read this. You said, quote, no matter how much we plan for the future, all we have to work with at any given moment in time is what's in front of us. And that actually reminded me of a uh, tweet that I saw last week from Ritholtz's Michael Batnick, where he said, uh, quote, we're not talking about the biggest risk to the market because risk never tips its hand. It's not inflation or COVID or anything else on our radar. And of course, that's probably true, right? But because of that, uh, you know, you get into talking about how investors then look for hedges or protection. We, we don't like to have this uncertainty out there. Um, I, I guess talk about that, that investors are seeking hedges and, and protection. And then maybe we can start heading down the path towards how all this might be impacting the markets. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the most fun parts of this whole experience was I got to talk to some of, you know, for lack of a better term, the luminaries in this sort of long volatility space who are people like, Mike Green, who is now at Simplify, and I think most people knew him from the Beale Foundation and Logic Capital and all that, um, or Chem Carson on, on Twitter. He's sort of probably one of the mavens of this area. And, and they're all rather humble, right? You point out that, you know, it's always the unknown unknowns that come out to bite us in the ass later, right? That's, I think we all understand that. We all know the things we're not even paying attention to are our, in fact, biggest risks. But when you talk to folks who are doing this for a living, they're actually even more humble about it than that. They don't think it's just that we're not paying attention to the right thing. It's that they're actually unknowable, right, that, that we never can predict the future. And therefore, if you look at the evidence, if you look at you know, things like the fact that we've got enormous skew in the market, if you look at things um, you know, like the fact that the tails of our, our market are, in fact, getting fatter, and I put up some great charts from Corey Hofstein on that front, um, all that that means is that the, the way we're approaching allocating assets and making investments is probably based on 30, 40 year old math with 30, 40 year old assumptions about how our model should work and is really underrepresenting both sides of the tails. And I think that's a really important distinction here. This is not about doom and gloom. This is not saying, oh, my gosh, the market is so much riskier to the downside than everybody expects. It's also riskier to the upside than everybody expects. And that's how we end up with things like last fall, where we had these runaway growth spikes in certain classes of stocks. That's the new normal. So the question is, if we're expecting these big tail moves in the markets or in sectors of the market, how do you position a portfolio? Well, let's talk about the answer to that question, because I, I agree. I mean, if the tails in the market are fatter now, whether both positive or, or negative, and, you know, we're seeing these big swings up and down, they're happening more often, they're happening faster. But again, these are unpredictable. What is an investor to do? 
Yeah, so I, probably the clearest example I got was from um, a guy named Jason Buck, who runs something called the Mutiny Fund and co-hosts Pirates of Finance with, with Corey Hofstein at Newfound. Um, and, and he's very much at the base of the coal mine here, working with institutional clients and helping them build what he calls cockroach portfolios, portfolios that are just going to survive and do well no matter what the heck happens in the outside world. And he talks about um, volatility parity, which I think is a really interesting way of thinking about it, right? If you're invested in the stock market, and that's predominantly your asset, or frankly, in bonds or any of the major asset classes we invest in, um, you are effectively short volatility, meaning volatility spikes are historically going to be bad for you. And I think we all sort of know that, right? That's why people invest in the VIX. They expect it to go up when the market goes down. Um, and so that's the baseline. Most of us are extraordinarily short volatility. And his whole approach is, well, maybe we should be balancing out all of those short volatility bets with some long volatility bets. And what that means practically is generally using the options market, right? Because that's where we have a market for volatility itself. There really aren't any other markets for it other than the derivatives markets. Um, and so at the simplest level, you can just think of that as hedging your downside risk and also giving yourself the opportunity to participate in outside um, outsized upside. Um, and, and, you know, that's effectively a convex set of returns, right? You have some baseline beta, but you also give yourself the opportunity to win should things go very wrong or very well. What's interesting here as you go through that, if more investors do start looking to the options market, does that sort of um, speed up the, these pro-cyclical forces that you were talking about earlier? I mean, does this become a, a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy or, or you know, start speeding this, this whole uh, situation up further? Uh, yeah, and, and that's one of the really interesting paradoxes of the world that we find ourselves in. Many of the things that we as individual actors, as an investor, as an advisor, the decisions that are the correct decision are actually probably going to make matters worse when they're put together collectively. And, you know, I'm not a policymaker. I'm not, I'm not here to say, and the solution to solving the global financial system is X. I think that's a little bit above my pay grade, right? So I'm really just observing what I see out there. But your point is correct. Many of the things that we're doing, leaning on the options market, learning how to understand volatility and risk better, using passive vehicles to, you know, get that low cost exposure to our client for our clients many of those things are in fact going to accelerate this this feature this pro cyclicality in the market this enhancement of the fat tails um however i don't actually think that that means you shouldn't do it because the alternative is what sitting cash and i don't think any advisor thinks that's the right thing to do either so given that this is the nature of the market our job as investors and advisors is to do the best thing for our portfolios and our clients portfolios I think you still have to be invested. The challenge is really questioning your models. One thing that I love that you said in the piece is that investors really need to check our preconceptions at the door about how markets used to work and start understanding some of these you know, flow-driven and, and, and you know, how options are impacting the market and these pro-cyclical forces. I thought that was a really good point. Um, Dave, before we move on here, because I do want to get to a couple of ETF topics, I have to ask you, one thing that caught my attention in your piece is you were talking about um, you know, all of these pro-cyclical forces, and you said changes in monetary policy and the rise of high-frequency trading have changed the game. 
to say nothing of the rise of ETFs and passive investing. And it was that last piece on ETFs and passive investing that caught my attention because it was actually just after I read a Bloomberg piece titled Wall Street Rebels Warn of Disastrous $11 trillion Index Boom, which to be honest, I, I thought we were kind of done with the ETF and, and index fear mongering. But then I saw you, you say that. What did you mean by that? Well, I, you know, the, again, this comes down to the let's look at the actual math, before, and, but without putting a lot of emotion behind it. I don't mm -hmm. think big hyperbolic headlines about, you know, indexing being worse than Marxism, to bring back an old one, I, I don't think they do anything for us, right? There's a lot of, like, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. That being said, it is unquestionable that the presence of indexes changes how the markets work. And, um, you know, I, probably the, the easiest to read piece on this would be Corey Hofstein's Liquidity Cascades piece. He has a, a wonderful couple pages in there where he walks through it. But these aren't controversial statements, right? I mean, you can simply ask the question, OK, well, if a large percentage of the assets in the world are indexed and those are equities, and pick any individual component of returns. Let's just talk about dividends, right? So company A at the top of the curve pays a dividend. Company B at the bottom of the curve doesn't. Well, net-net, what ends up happening in an index world is all of that dividend money flows from the high-yield companies to go to the zero-yield companies because of reinvestment. So think about the long-term implications of that are you're actually mushing the returns of the high yielders and the low yielders together because you're constantly reallocating from high yield to low yield stocks. There are about a dozen things like that that have interesting implications for how markets work. I don't think it means that the entire world comes collapsing down, but they, on average, when you roll it all together, have a pro-cyclical effect on markets. It means that winners tend to run longer you know, and, and, you know, losers, yeah, they can fall apart very quickly. But more and more, what we're seeing is this endless bid on the market is, in fact, supported by index flows. Um, and so I think the real learning here is we're increasingly in a flows driven market, not a fundamentals driven market. And perhaps that's controversial. But I think most of the evidence would suggest that flows on a day to day basis are much more important than any given earnings announcement. Well, Dave, I really enjoyed the piece. Extremely thought-provoking. For listeners, go check it out. Again, it's at ETFtrends.com. Uh, you, you won't be disappointed. Um, Dave, just a couple of minutes left here. Um, let's go back to where I'm much more comfortable talking in the, in the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> uh, I'll toss two quick ETF topics at you. And the first is this trend we're seeing of social influencers getting involved in ETFs. The latest came last week with this launch of the uh, advisor shares Gerber Kawasaki ETF, ticker GK. This is managed by Ross Gerber. Uh, he, he currently has like 160,000 Twitter followers, gets a ton of media attention. And then, of course, earlier this year, Barstool's Dave Portnoy got involved with the Vanek Vector Social Sentiment ETF, ticker Buzz. Uh, he, he was promoting the index behind that. Roundhill had a Joe Pompliano. He's the brother of Anthony Pompliano. He has like 270,000 Twitter followers. Uh, so he's involved with the Roundhill MVP ETF. And then last week, Roundhill also launched the Ball Metaverse ETF, ticker Meta, great ticker. And this involves Matthew Ball, who's a well-known uh, technical expert in the space. And he has like 75,000 Twitter followers. The question I have for you is, What's your take on this trend of these sort of known entities putting their name behind an ETF? 
I, you know, for the most part, I, I'm pretty cynical, and I think of this as marketing. Um, you know, and and of course, that marketing will work to some extent. I mean, I think Buzz has 250 million dollars in it right now. Mm-hmm. So obviously, the 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 pardon the pun, the buzz of a marketing brand like that does matter. Uh, it's, I'm a little skeptical. Obviously, all of these things ultimately come down to: is there actually an, any investment IP here that adds value to the investor? At the end of the day, that's the only thing that actually matters. Are you justifying your fee by providing more value? Uh, you know, it will be remain to be seen. I generally think that something like the Gerber ETF, you know, that probably makes a little more sense because at least people can identify with perhaps an investing ethos. I'm not sure that you can say the same thing about a lot of the social media only type stars as opposed to folks who are kind of professional investors that folks understand. Um, so I, I remain skeptical and the proof will always be in the pudding. So we're not going to see a Dave Nottig ETF anytime soon? Uh, not while I'm alive. <laughs> All right. And then uh, briefly, one other ETF topic I really wanted to get your take on because we haven't had a chance to discuss this. This engine number one ETF, the uh, Transform 500 ETF ticker vote, which is basically a uh, an S&P 500 index fund costs five basis points, but the difference is you have an activist investor behind it, an engine number one, who's going to attempt to engage with companies to uh, enact change. Uh, What do you think about this one? I absolutely love this. So, I mean, I've been saying for a number of years that I think we will reach a point where people pick their S&P 500 fund based on the voting system. Uh, And I got laughed at 10 years ago when I put that up on a slide. And this is ultimately where we're headed. And and the folks behind this fund, I think, are great. Jennifer Grancio, ex-BlackRock, one of the sharpest people in the business, um, and and a whole crew of folks behind that. And I I love this idea of an activist investor literally just for putting it all out there, putting not only their money where their mouth is, but inviting everybody to come along with them and then making a lot of noise, right? I think this is a fantastic way for people who really believe in long-term change through activism to put their money where their mouth is and get behind something like this. And, you know, I think it's also really important to point out this is a very well-connected group of people behind this. So their ability to not only just raise a bunch of money, but to actually get access to these boardrooms, and more importantly, to get access to other institutional investors who may not be their investors, like, say, BlackRock, uh, to go along with them on specific company votes, I think it's fantastic. Couldn't agree more. I think listeners know I'm, I'm typically skeptical of ESG ETFs as a whole, but in my mind, this is the way you go about doing it. This is this is an active way to engage companies. I love it. Uh, Dave, excellent stuff as always. Thank you for joining me this week. Oh, thank you. thanks for having me. I'll be back anytime. That was ETF Trends, Dave Nodig. Looking to invest in the forefront of change impacting our lives? Take a look at biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Why? Because biotechnology companies recently developed effective vaccines for COVID-19, and semiconductor firms created computer chips that are used across today's growing industries. Close to 20 years ago, NASDAQ developed two indexes to help investors track biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Learn more at Invesco.com IBBQ or Invesco.com SOXQ. IBBQ and SOXQ are NASDAQ listed. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-983-0903 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Investco Distributors, Inc. Well, 
is just a simple song to say what you done. I told you about all those fears and the way they did run. You sure must be strong. And you feel like an ocean made warm by the sun. My next guest is Eric Irvin, CEO of Blockforce Capital and co-founder of OnRamp Invest. Now, Blockforce is a crypto asset alternative investment firm. They offer a multi-strategy crypto fund. And OnRamp, if I had to describe OnRamp in a nutshell, they're building the bridge for financial advisors between the traditional financial services ecosystem and the crypto asset ecosystem. And Eric himself, he has a long history uh, in the ETF space, actually built and sold reality shares, launched a blockchain ETF a few years ago. And then on the crypto side, I can just tell you, Eric knows the space inside and out, was named a top crypto pioneer by Business Insider. And he's now on the line with me, actually traveling to Colorado. Uh, Eric, always great having you on the podcast. Thanks, Nate. It's been um, it's been a while. I, I, uh, I'm really happy to be on. It brings back a lot of memories. Well, ETF days. No, I'm excited to have you back, and and we're going to get all into the crypto markets here in a moment. But I want to start with OnRamp Invest. Uh, you are building this bridge between traditional financial services and crypto, and it's amazing to me just watching from my perch. Your team is moving fast here. I mean, I feel like I see a new announcement on Twitter every other day. And, and by the way, for listeners, full disclosure, I am a strategic advisor to OnRamp. Uh, but, but Eric, just give us uh, an update. How's everything been going? Uh, what do you have cooking right now? I, I know it's never a dull moment building a company from scratch. Yeah, that's um, and you, you, your description was was perfect. I think as as far as building those bridges, the. Um, Gosh, just going back, August 3rd was the day we founded the company, and we're already now um, through a seed round of capital. We've already launched the MVP of the, of the product. We're, um, it is literally lightning, lightning pace, a breakneck pace. We have an amazing round of investors from Coinbase to Gemini, to, and, and we'll be making a big announcement soon, but a ton of great investors, and just really putting all of the pieces together. So that people don't have to stay inside of that walled garden of the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ Stock Exchange in order to get access to investments. That they can really open open those doors and open the gates so that advisors can advise on all of the client's assets as opposed to just a few. Yeah, talk more about that. I mean, explain exactly what you are building with OnRamp. What are some of the specific problems you're attempting to solve? Well, the first of which is just access to cryptocurrency exchanges and um, custodians. That was one of the biggest uh, needs that I saw many, many years ago when exploring the do we launch an ETF on Bitcoin question. As, um, and, and we used to joke a little bit about how you know the ETF industry has jumped the shark when you see an IBM ETF. And, <laughs> and I felt a little bit like that. I, and I'm not opposed to a Bitcoin ETF. It's just there are already exchanges where it's hyper liquid, it's easy to access, but the problem is, is most financial advisors can't do that. They have to tell their clients to go open a Coinbase account, for example. They can't just do it for them like they can with a Schwab account or a TV client account. And so what we're doing is we're just building that rail or that, that infrastructure 
so that a financial advisor right within their own tech stack can open a client account at a qualified custodian, either Gemini, Prime Trust, soon to be Coinbase, many, many others, and then invest in Bitcoin or other assets right there, all in their own workflow. One question I've heard is, what if we get to a place where uh, Schwab and Fidelity and every other brokerage is offering crypto trading direct? Does that change anything at all with, with your business model or how you approach the space here? Well, yes, yeah, surely. And if certainly if it happened tomorrow, um, that's, that takes a good chunk of our, our competition away. But I mean, adds a, a good chunk to our competition. But that's not... Uh, it's, it's not like they're just going to turn this on. Fidelity's been working on this for almost four years, and they just now have custody for qualified institutional accounts. So if you're a hedge fund or if you're a very large broker-dealer, you can custody your assets at Fidelity, or a mutual fund, you can custody your assets at Fidelity. And Fidelity, in theory, you know, like they should have all of the technology and all of the ability to do that. So that's one thing. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. But when it does, the... the um, the ecosystem is so big right now. Like there, there's decentralized finance. There's the ability to to lend, to borrow, to create new synthetic products right through the existing um, Ethereum blockchain and other blockchains. So by the time Schwab starts offering Bitcoin trading, I think the world will have evolved well beyond that. But in addition to that is the amount of assets that are available and the amount of asset managers that are coming online to offer separate accounts in this space, I think that's where we'll just really step on the gas and, and be like that model marketplace for digital assets. Yeah, I mean, I think an interesting place you could carve out is actually with direct indexing in the crypto space. I mean, have you considered that at all? Is that something on the longer term roadmap? Yeah, it is. And, and we're already, because um, our DNA is, is in the, like we built all of our own indexes at Reality Shares. We we absolutely know and love that. And and again, our whole goal is to be kind of that cost-conscious access to crypto. It's not um, like there's right now there's separately managed accounts where you can pay 300 basis points to get access to Bitcoin and Ethereum. We don't we don't believe that makes sense for advisors or for clients. What we think is we just want to give the access and the exposure so individual investors can buy a whole slew of um, whatever they really want. But but it's a big world, so we need to break it down into bite-sized chunks. So here's the DeFi index. Here's the large-cap index. Here's the uh, mid-cap index. Here's the, the cryptocurrency exchange index, because there's all these different tokens that offer exposure to these different um, sectors or subsectors of the crypto economy. On that note, with just, you know, how much is out there right now, whether and we can talk DeFi later if you want or, or some of the different tokens. But I have to mention one of my favorite aspects to what you're building is OnRamp Academy, which, you know, from my perspective, this is truly a, a full educational platform for crypto. And I'm not just saying that I, I've gone through the materials available here. I was blown away by what you already have available. It's truly a wealth of resources. But I, I know a core tenant of OnRamp is to lead with education. Can you talk more about that and, and what the longer-term vision is for OnRamp Academy? Yeah, and and, um, and this all came about from my co-founder, Tyrone Ross, who's uh, a former financial advisor himself and, and really saw the need. And he's kind of one of the go-to people on the Internet for, for financial advisors looking to get access. But he came up with this EAT. We're going we're gonna to help advisors eat. 
E is education, A is give them access, and T is give them the tools that they need to someday access this asset class. And so OnRamp Academy was all about the E and the T. It's the education and the tooling that they need in order to to really get up to speed on the asset class. So it has everything from um, primers on, you know, explain Bitcoin to me like I'm five, all the way to uh, white papers about how to value this asset class on, on a on varying, you know, Metcalf's law or others. We have a new paper coming out right now talking about the, um, the benefits of diversification and volatile asset classes using as long as the, the variance is uncorrelated. So I think people will be really surprised at that. You can have actually a downtrending asset class, and as long as you're rebalancing on a more regular basis, you actually end up with positive returns because it isn't correlated, contrary to what a lot of people say about cryptocurrencies. So, um, so really that's – and then on top of that, there's all the tooling. So you can go in there, you can build out a portfolio – run an analysis, set the rebalance frequency, and then quick pop up your logo and then send it to your client and, and show them, you know, what you've done in the OnRamp Academy. So all of those tools are really available to users. Well, well Eric, I continue to be really excited about what you're building with OnRamp and OnRamp Academy. And I, I would highly encourage listeners to, to check out OnRampInvest.com if you're so inclined. But OnRamp Academy, the educational resources are truly are uh, phenomenal. Um, okay, let's pivot here and talk crypto markets. And then I also want to ask you a little bit about portfolio construction uh, with, with crypto, which you were just actually alluding to. But, you know, look, we're currently in what I guess you could call a crypto bear market, right? The price of Bitcoin has gone from about, what, 65000 in April to now around 35000 somewhere in that neighborhood. Now, for context, I think we should mention Bitcoin was at like 5000 last March, right? So we need to keep <laughs> yeah. that in mind. But what, what are your thoughts on what's been going on here recently? I mean, you look, Ethereum's down. A lot of crypto assets are down pretty significantly. Yeah, well, we had, a, like you said, we had a huge run-up since uh, March of last year. It was 3000 at one point, or 3400 in, in March last year. It just kept going towards the end of 2020, um, you know, like August, September, October, November, December. And, and we kept waiting for the breather as Bitcoin just marched higher and higher and higher. This year was all about Ethereum. So Ethereum and and the other smart contract platforms really took off. So last year it was mostly about um, there was a the DeFi summer, which kind of happened in the middle part of last year, where a lot of DeFi protocols really took off, and then Bitcoin really led the day last year. This year, Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, a few other um, protocols of looking at smart contracts took off and, and had an absolute fantastic run. And then we got to this point here um, back in May where it was the market just had no more room to go. It, it needed to take a breather. And we got a nice, good pullback. I would say a healthy pullback from the 65000 on Bitcoin and, and almost 4000 on Ethereum. Here we are kind of consolidating, building that base and, and um, offering people the opportunity to to kind of re-enter or, or at least average in on some of their positions. I don't think this is, yeah, a bad thing. I think this is just part of investing in, in a new and novel technology and asset class. It's, it's, um, it's not the, ooh, it's scary cryptocurrency market anymore. Now it's just a volatile, new emerging technology. And I think that's the best way for people to think about it. 
as they invest. Well, and I I guess on that note, Eric, I mean, I I don't know that you and I have discussed this before. What do you view as the primary uh, use case or investment rationale for Bitcoin at this point in time? And then if you want to speak to uh, Ethereum as well, I I know that's a a different case, but just high level, what do you view as the investment case for, for both of those? For, for Bitcoin itself, I think um, it's it's the digital gold. I think that the the Bitcoin community came um, w- willingly or, or otherwise they they came to the conclusion that they were going to be a slow, stable, secure um, bit digital gold. You know, store of value that had really no desire to be the smart contract platform or the programmable money beyond just uh, the ability to send transactions and receive transactions and to grow over time. And, and that really is the, the idea behind Bitcoin. And that was um, a number of decisions that led to that. But Bitcoin, as, as you know, processes transactions every 10 minutes, like clockwork. Anyone can download the software on an average um, to, to slightly better than average laptop. So anyone can join the network at any time. Anyone can leave the network at any time. And it doesn't matter where you live or who you are. And it's much easier, I'll tell you, to transport 12 num- or twelve words in your head with a b- worth a billion dollars than it is to transport a billion dollars worth mm-hmm. of gold from one country to another. So it's just a better form of gold. And then w- what uh, about Ether? And then Ethereum, I think of as, uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a global supercomputer, really, and it's a smart contract platform that, that is not centralized. So um, I, I think of Ethereum like the highway system back in the early 1900s as we were building out roads and highways to support these new vehicles. Those vehicles needed to get around, and, and they needed gas in order to get around. And so gas became this commodity that those cars used but it led to the building of um, roadside diners and motels and hotels so lots and lots of applications were built on that highway system and the commodity that powered that highway system was fuel was oil that is ethereum so ethereum is a network it's an infrastructure and then there's lots of applications being built on that infrastructure and the fuel to power that network is Ethereum, ETH, basically. And that, that's, I think, a good way to think about Ethereum is it's just, it can do a lot more. No, I absolutely love that. And of course, the apps that you're speaking to, I mean, we are seeing a lot of, uh, of, of that's DeFi, right? It's decentralized finance. We're seeing all these applications being built on top of Ethereum. The one thing, though, as I look at that space, I think it causes a lot of confusion among investors, right? Especially new investors to crypto. They see all these different tokens out there. It can be really difficult to get your head around. I, I guess besides just telling people to go to OnRamp Academy, can you mm-hmm. offer any tips to someone who's uh, interested in this space? I mean, where should they begin? How, how did you do it? Yeah, well, that, that's so funny. We call it the rabbit hole. Where um, and actually on our on ramp uh, website, we have a, a tab that, on our blog. Anyways, we have a tab that it's called educational resources, and it's it's really just a collection of all of the different podcasts and YouTube's and and articles that I came across, and and we all kind of came across this on our little journey down the rabbit hole. But um, but to your point, it is complicated. It is confusing. I think if you start with those two assets. You've got Bitcoin and you've got Ethereum. They're very different, but Bitcoin represents 
um, any given day, over 50% of the total value in digital assets and crypto assets. Ethereum is, is probably 30%. So you've got almost 80% of the market there just in those two. But then actually using Ethereum, and it's kind of a shame now because it's a little bit more expensive because the network is so congested. But I, I um, it's just the coolest thing. Like when you can send Ethereum to a smart contract and and then borrow against that and earn yield in in a bank that isn't even a bank and and there's no counterparty risk because you're just you've cut out all the middleman it's um it's just like really a beautiful thing and then on top of that like we've we've written smart contracts where people can send ethereum to them and it will automatically buy and sell based on our signals like an index fund but what that goes from cash back to ethereum and we have nothing to do with it, and they can enter or leave at their will. It's, it's basically an ETF without any custodian or asset manager or anything. It's just completely decentralized. All that's happening on the Ethereum network. Eric, just a couple minutes left here. For investors who do feel well-versed enough to either invest on their own in the space or, or perhaps are advising clients on the space, can you talk about what you view as some of the core tenants of investing in crypto? You, you know, things like allocation, position sizing, re- rebalancing, those sort of those sorts of things. I mean, what what are the core basics here? Yeah, I um, I came up with this this rule of three, and and it was three percent of your assets. So no more than three percent of your if you're just beginning and, and you're just kind of testing it, the waters. No more than three percent of your assets, um, but also. Three percent of your discretionary income. So, so you've got to commit to a dollar cost averaging program, and then, and then, um, uh, rebalance at least every three months. And th- and that became kind of like this mantra of, um, you know, that's not so much stomach acid that I can't overcome it, right? Because if it gets up too high, I'm automatically going to rebalance and I'm going to sell some and and buy my stock portfolio and my ETF portfolio. And then on the flip side, if it goes down, I'm going to be selling some stock portfolio and an ETF portfolio in order to dollar cost average. And I'm going to be applying some income, but it's such a small percentage of my income that I'm allocating to. And I'm just going to get smarter and more educated on it. And then, then only then, do I decide to, to go bigger and, and really kind of get uh, more access to the space. That, if, if you can stick to that, I think that that leaves the stomach acid at a low enough level to where almost anyone can participate. And even in the worst case scenario, you lose your 3%. And, and I think that's just like a bad week in the S- S&P 500. So I think people can stomach that kind of volatility. I absolutely love that. And I always tell people, yeah, the best thing to do is just get involved in the space. Use a very small amount of money, obviously something that you, you, you can afford to lose, you don't mind losing. But the quickest way to learn is to start buying some of these, these crypto assets and getting involved in, in some of the deep, you know, going to going to Uniswap, right, and, and trading, or yeah. like you said, go, going and getting some yield on your crypto lending it. Doing those things with a very small amount of money, I think, is, is the best way to learn. But, um, Eric, always enjoy connecting. Keep on building. Again, really excited with everything going on at uh, OnRamp, and I'm sure we'll be in touch soon. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Eric Irvin, CEO of Blockforce Capital and co-founder of OnRamp Invest.
I'm now joined by Darren Sharinga, CEO and founder of Asymmetric ETFs, who back in March, they launched their first product. It's called the Asymmetric 500 ETF, ticker symbol ASPY, A-S-P-Y. This is based on technology Darren developed, which actually powered one of the largest hedge fund seeds back in 2015. And I should note, Darren is no newcomer to ETFs. He has uh, an impressive background here, founded Exchange Traded Concepts, ETC, back in 2011, which was the first and remains the largest white-label ETF platform in the world. He also founded Yorkville ETF Advisors, which was acquired by Van Eck in 2015. And he's now on the line with me from New York. Darren, welcome to the podcast. Nate, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Well, let's uh, jump right into the ETF, and then I do want to come back to your background and the, the backstory on this product. So take us through ASPY. What does this hold? What's going on underneath the hood? What's the investment goal? Absolutely. Let me start with this analogy, because I just think it's so appropriate in helping investors understand how ASPY fits into their overall portfolio. So it's an Uber analogy, Uber the car service. Uber through technology, brought black car service to the masses and revolutionized the way people commute. Asymmetric, through technology, is bringing the benefits of hedge funds, which are asymmetric returns, to Main Street and will revolutionize the way that advisors and their clients manage portfolio risk. So, Nate, the most important part of what we're doing here in getting under the hood of asymmetric ETFs is asymmetric returns. And let me put what asymmetric returns mean into plain English. To us, asymmetric returns mean the ability to make money in bear markets and to capture the majority of the upside of a bull market. So again, asymmetric returns make money in bear markets and capture the majority of the upside of a bull market. And that's what asymmetric ETFs are designed to do. Okay, so if you look at ASPY, I mean, what, what, what is this holding? I know it can go short SPY. What, what else is in the portfolio? Absolutely. So the way we do that in, in ASPY accomplishes that heroic goal of producing asymmetric returns is ultimately what we're doing is we are dynamically managing net exposure across three different risk environments, or more importantly or more accurately, systematically managing portfolio exposures. And what do we do in the portfolio? We don't use derivatives because derivatives are too complicated for, for, for me to understand most of the time and definitely for, for most retail investors. So the way that we're able to make money in bear markets in, in ASPY, our first ETF, is that we actually go short the market. So in this case, ASPY is designed to, to produce the returns of, of the S&P 500 over a market cycle by, again, making money in, in, in bear markets and capturing the majority of the upside. We do that making money in, in bear markets by going short, the, by going short SPY. Mm -hmm. in, in this case, that means short the market. So, so for us, the difference in, in our product relative to some of our competition out there is the ability to make money in, 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 in bear markets. And by doing that, we're not using derivatives again, but we're using we're shorting the market. So ultimately what we're doing, what's most important when you think of, of asymmetric ETFs, is dynamically managing exposure, again, across three market risk environments. And that's, and that's net exposure. So if you want to dive deeper, please, let's go down that rabbit hole. But let me turn it back over to you. Yeah, in terms of the long exposure here, um, I, it's large cap stocks. My understanding is you're targeting stocks with a lower volatility relative to the markets, correct? Correct. 
So what, what we're doing in, in the long book, so ultimately, this, this is a hedge fund strategy. Mm-hmm. So it's a long, short strategy. So it has two components. We always have long exposure, and that's our, our long book, and we always have short exposure to mitigate risk. And so with our, our long exposure, what we're doing is because ASPY is positioned to be the low volatility equity component of, of, of an advisor's portfolio mix, we accomplish that partially by investing in low volatility stocks for our long exposure. So our long book, what we're doing is we're looking at the, the universe, the 500 largest capitalization stocks in the United States. That's our investment universe. And then we're screening those stocks for a single factor, and the factor here that we're looking for is beta. We want to find the securities that have the lowest beta, and beta is a measure of, of volatility. So we want the lowest volatility securities. And then from these securities that we're, we're screening, when we find the lowest beta, then we want to make sure that it replicates the overall market. So how do we do that? Well, there's 11 sectors in, in, in the market, and so our portfolio has 11 sectors. And then we, we weight these sectors so that they're market neutral relative to their, their, their benchmark, which is the S&P 500. So ultimately what we have is, is we have U.S. large cap exposure but low, volatil- low volatility large cap exposure, and that's one of the ways in constructing our portfolio that we're able to deliver to investors our, our, well, our investment objectives, and which is, again, low volatility equity exposure. I'm curious, what is the uh, current positioning right now? Is it full risk on, given what we've seen out of the markets? Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's, it's been risk-on. So since we've gone live in March, the portfolio has been in a risk-on environment. And we use two signals to, to measure uh, market risk. And what's really nice about asymmetrics approach, it's a common-sense approach. So investors and their clients can understand why the portfolio is positioned like it is. And so currently it's in a risk-on environment, and our two signals are price-based signals. And, and why do we use price-based signals? Because price bakes in 100% of all known information, including black swan events. And so we measure two, two different price movements. One is the price movement of the market. We want to understand, again, broadly speaking, how the benchmark, the S&P 500, is doing. So we're looking at the price movement of the overall market. And we want to know if it's trending upward or trending downward. So ultimately, whether the market's broken down technically. And for that, we use the 200-day moving average as the primary driver of what we call our price momentum indicator. The second indicator that we're looking at is a proprietary indicator that, that I developed called, called price vol. And price volatility looks at the realized volatility of, again, these 500 stocks that I, I described earlier, the 500 largest stocks in the, the United States. And so what we're looking at in price volatility is we want to see when, when risk is rising in the market, what we see is the, the returns of the underlying, these 500 stocks, starts to, to, to blow apart, right? The, the return between the highest and the lowest company starts to get wider apart. And I, I'd like to view this, if you go back to high school um, physics or chemistry, it's like going from a, a solid water and a solid ice. Molecules are tight together. As you move into a liquid, the molecules move fr- further apart. And then as you move into a gas, when water becomes a vapor or steam, molecules are really fall par- far apart. The same thing happens with security returns. In a, in a low volatility market, security returns are tight like ice, and as volatility starts to rise, they become like water, move apart, and then returns blow apart when there's panic in the market and panic selling. So we use those two signals. 
Um, we want to see in a risk-off environment, which is most important to us, preserving capital and actually attempting to make money in, in bear markets, we, we're going to see two things. We're going to see the, the risk of the market, the returns blow apart, so realized vol is going to spike, and we're going to see a broken-down market. When those two come together, we're in a risk-off environment, and in a risk-off environment, we'll actually be net short which gives us the ability to make market to to make market to make money in a bear market. How should investors view the CTF in the context of a portfolio? I mean, is this a, an S&P 500 ETF replacement? Does it go in the alternative bucket? Where, where does this fit? No, it, it like no. That, so where where it fits? Think of of ASPY. It's it is for what it's designed to be. You, Advisors today, they have stocks, they have bonds, and now they have a third alternative called asymmetric returns. And, and, and asymmetric returns are a disruptive portfolio risk management tool that institutional investors have been using for decades. And, and what should asymmetric returns do? They should accomplish this goal, lower the risk and improve the performance of an overall portfolio of stocks and bonds, or traditional portfolio of stocks and bonds. Right? Exactly what investors are looking for. So when you take a look at, at a SPY relative to the S&P 500, it has a correlation of 0.33, which a correlation of zero means it, it, it absolutely moves independently, and a correlation of one means it moves 100% in line with the S&P 500. So a correlation of 0.33 is very low. And in order to have a diversified portfolio, advisors and investors need to find stocks that don't move together. And that's what ASPY does. It's a stock that moves independently because it produces asymmetric returns uh, relative to, to the market. So when, when you think of ASPY putting into your portfolio, the benefit is, okay, I expect ASPY then should lower the risk and improve the performance of my overall portfolio because it's uncorrelated. And when you think of it, how can advisors use it today? We look at it as a core holding. This is something that if you have a, an an equity or, or an investment solution that can slow and steady produce in bear and bull markets that equity-like returns, that 8 to 10%, build on that. Make that the ballast of your portfolio and then build around it with your satellite positions where you're looking to generate alpha. So when we look at ASPY, think of it as a, as a core equity position that, that's meant and designed to slow and steady produce equity-like returns across both bear and bull markets. And uh, think of it as a core holding in the portfolio. Darren, just a couple minutes left here. We were uh, talking earlier just about your background in hedge funds. And, you know, a common saying in the ETF space over the past what, decade plus, and I've definitely said this my fair share of times, is that ETFs have helped democratize investing, right? They've helped bring institutional caliber strategies to retail investors. And I don't think there's any question that's the case. But I'll be honest, the saying feels somewhat cliche to me now, I think just because I've heard it so much. Just with the remaining time we have, and, and given your background, can you freshen this up for us a little bit? Like, like drive home exactly what this means and, and why it's important? Because I'm guessing this also ties into why you ultimately decided to launch this strategy in an ETF wrapper. Uh, Nate, absolutely. Uh, outside of what we're doing, the, the core and the mission of, of, of asymmetric ETFs is, is to empower retail investors and their advisors because the tools that have been available to retail investors are not of the same caliber that institutional advisors have had or institutional investors have had access to for decades now. And, and these tools are, are, are investment solutions that have the ability to produce asymmetric returns. So by having this unlevel playing field, you have, again, this has led to a, a, a bit of the problem of wealth inequality. 
And when we looked at our role here is, is how can we help retail investors and equip them with the tools they need to compete in today's marketplace with the, with the, the risks, markets trading at all-time high, interest rates rising. And if you only have stocks and bonds, it, it, these are not sufficient tools to, to compete successfully and, and to, to change, radically change the, the return profile of, of uh, retail investors' portfolios. And, and so the little guy needs help. And, and when, when Ace Symmetric came to market, that was our vision. They said, we need to level the playing field here by bringing these institutionally, these institutional solutions down to, to retail investors. And, and if you look at Ace Buy, again, you mentioned the technology. They backed one of the largest hedge fund seeds in the country of, of uh, back in 2015. So the technology's been around for a while, although we're just rolling out our first retail product now. This is what we're bringing to market is an unadulterated version that our, our last clients in it and investors in it were sovereign wealth funds, were, were ERISA plans, and, and we're bringing this technology again in its pure form down to retail investors. And it's, it, it, it is meant to radically change the way investors look and, and manage portfolio risk. Well, Darren, congratulations on the launch of Ace Buy. Certainly wish you the best of luck with this ETF. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you, Nate. Thank you for having me. That was Darren Sharinga, CEO and founder of Asymmetric ETFs. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank our sponsors, NASDAQ and Invesco. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I could not be more excited about this. I'll be joined by Burton Malkiel, CIO at Wealthfront and author of A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Just can't wait to hear his thoughts on what we've seen out of the markets over the past year. And then Sunil Wahal, professor of finance at Arizona State University and academic consultant to Avantis ETFs, will talk value investing. Until then, have a great week, everyone.